Hello, I'm Amanda Griffiths, the Quality Director at Voyage Care. Welcome back to season two of our podcast where the theme is quality. Today's episode is with myself and Debbie Ivanova, Deputy Chief Inspector for People with Learning Disability and Autistic People from the CQC. Here we'll be discussing all things CQC, COVID-19 and of course quality. So Debbie, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, It is really good to have the opportunity to almost demonstrate that there doesn't always have to be um, kind of a schism between provider and regulator because actually for many people we all have the same aims and objectives and that is to see the delivery of great care. So I'm sitting here as a quality director at Voyage Care with many years Um, probably too many years experience within social care, although I wouldn't change a thing. Um, And many people that will be listening will know who I am, especially for the Voyage Care listeners. But it'd be really good if you could introduce yourself and just tell us a bit more about who you are and about what your role is. That'd be really great. Thank you, Amanda. Really good to join you today. I'm Debbie from CQC. And my job is as Deputy Chief Inspector for people with a learning disability and autistic people. Now, this is just a one year post um, to actually look at how we change our regulation of services for people with a learning disability and autistic people. But I'm a social worker by profession, but started my exciting career working as a care assistant um, in a service for for children with a learning disability. And I've managed homes um, for people coming out of long-stay hospital and moving into the community before I became a regulator. For the last 25 years, I've mainly worked in regulation, but I did spend three years working in um, Bulgaria and in Albania and a little bit in Macedonia, really trying to get people to think about how to organise their care for people with a learning disability in those countries too. So... My passion is, is, is about working with, with people um, and really supporting them to live the best lives they possibly can. So you've done it straight away there, Debbie. So at the point at which you said Albania, interestingly, um, before the pandemic, probably six months before the pandemic, I had a really long trip to Albania and visited with some people who are delivering LD services down in Saranda and trying to get them off the ground. So there's a real common shared theme. And I might pick your brain a bit more about that at some point. So I think you are the only other person I've spoken to ever with any experience of social care in Albania. So Uh. you've really made me smile now. So that's really interesting. Um, I think what I want to do first is I want to try and explain where we come from as um, an organisation. I've been here eight years and I think one of the the most valuable things that we did as an organisation was creating a document which underpins everything we do, which we refer to as our quality framework. It's not a policy. It's not a procedure. It really just sets out what we believe and for us that identifies um, that we define quality pretty much in line with what Lord Darcy did back in 2008 and that was such a good definition it stands so we say that quality is an equal mix of care and support which is safe it's effective 
and it delivers a great experience. And then underneath that, we sit five goals, which encompass sort of our competent caring staff. And we know there are issues at the moment around that. We absolutely have a goal of involving the people we support. We have a very clear goal around measuring positive outcomes, and we've done some specific work around that. The key thing that I look at all the time is positive assurance. What does our data, what do our outcomes, what do our staffing issues, what do they tell us about the quality? And then the final thing is we are always looking to ensure that we're delivering that kind of consistent quality care and support for every single person that we're supported. And it'd be really interesting to understand perhaps what you, do you personally have a definition that you hold dear as um, defining what quality care for people with a learning disability or autistic people would have? And is there a formal line, a short and jaunty formal line from the regulator? Okay, so um, all of those things you've talked about have to be really important, don't they, in quality care for people um, that we're involved with, supporting and looking after. But I guess I'd want to start by saying, I think the fundamental principle is that um, autistic people and people with a learning disability are as entitled to live an ordinary life as any other citizen. So I think what that means is we expect health and social care providers to really guarantee people those choices, the dignity, the independence and the good access to local communities that most of us take for granted. So I think we also want services to be really ambitious and it's a word you'll hear me use probably quite a few, a few times today because I think it sums up what I really think we should be trying to do so we want services to be ambitious with people about their lives we want services to become really person-centered and making sure that that ambition is tailored to each person's needs and aspirations so focusing on understanding people getting under what they really want and supporting them to live good lives of their choosing rather than only thinking about what's the best way to keep people safe or the best way to meet people's care needs perhaps put simply it's it's not only about what is important for the person but what's important to the person and how do we get to the place where we're confident we know that and that that the ambition we have for that person is good enough that's a really um, great way of describing it. And that it's really interesting, actually, because um, at the end of the day, it takes a lot for an organisation to get to that place culturally that you are always challenging back and saying, what does that person want themselves? Um, and I think, yeah, that we we were on a great path doing that. And one of the things that we found really difficult with the introduction of COVID and the regulations was that made that, made it a little bit more difficult because for people who don't have that intellectual ability to understand the restrictions, et cetera, I think that really impacted on the lives of people um, being supported, especially in residential homes. I think it was it, it was a difficult one. And I know that for me, there were great frustrations in the early days. What was coming out in terms of guidance and all had a significant slant on older people and homes for older people. Um, I don't know. Did you find that and that there were changes 
in that approach with that more direct instructional view around guidance, et cetera, throughout the COVID? I suppose it's around, you know, how did you cope with that as a regulator, the fact that we had very clear instructions that could not be interpreted? Yeah, it, it has been a really difficult period of time. And for me, working during COVID has meant that I was in regular touch with, with a whole wide um, group of stakeholders, but also with the Department of Health and Social Care, to try to make sure that we kept thinking across the whole of social care so that we didn't just focus on older people but what does this mean what do these rules mean for people with a learning disability how do they actually translate into good practice taking into account people's human rights taking into account the fact that we've got to really think about um, uh, what are the reasonable adjustments that need to be made to enable people to live their lives you're absolutely right. It was very, very difficult. And that's why we changed the way that we were inspecting a little bit during COVID so that we could really move slightly away from a focus on inspections to a focus on supportive conversations, certainly at the beginning of COVID when we were doing our emergency service framework. And we actually had 20,000, I think, conversations with providers over that period of time. And then, of course, we moved into our um, infection prevention and control methodology, which we did, I think, about 6,000 of those inspections, really looking at how um, services were using the guidance, both around how staff should behave, but also how to use visitors, how to make sure the services is kept um, to the standards that were expected during COVID. All of those things are slightly different from, from our sort of fundamental approach, which is much more about what is people's real experience of care. But I suppose what I think we also try to do is um, recognising that COVID could, because of those very, very rules that you've talked about, um, end up creating more closed environments, which can lead, therefore, to more closed cultures. So we also wanted to strengthen our approach to identifying those closed cultures. And of course, in the light of the, the reviews that were done after Wharton Hall and, and Glynis Murphy reports that we had and our own out of sight report into um, the, the, the situation of people who um, are restrained, restricted and secluded within all types of services, hospitals and care homes and supported living. Um, we know um, the real risks that there can be for people when closed cultures develop. So we needed to make sure that we were still balancing that and, and getting under the cultures whenever we could. And it's really those things that led me into the post that I'm in now, um, looking at specifically how do we regulate services for people with a learning disability. Thank you. I was really delighted when I saw that this post had been created personally speaking, because it, it kind of puts somebody at the helm. Um, there was always, there's always been changes um, relative to the sector in which we work. But to have a person, it is a personal touch, it makes a difference to know there is a person or there is somebody with the responsibility for the area. And I think, you know, it's for a year, it would be really good to see that continue. Because I think also it shines a light on the importance of this um, sector of social care. I think it's been a very positive move. I think you've already talked to me a bit about how the role of CQC changed during the pandemic. And interestingly, those ESF calls at the very beginning 
in the main, and although there would have been a few very small exceptions, our managers all found those incredibly supportive. They were very nervous because it's a change and people don't like change. But I think credit where credit's due, majority of managers that we spoke to and anybody that at this time, while we're still in a bit of a state of limbo, I speak to every manager who has a visit or a call and I speak to them before and I speak to them after because we kind of went into this in March last year and everything just went up in the air, didn't it? And it's very difficult. We forget that managers don't like change as much as the people we support don't like change. But yeah, it's worthwhile giving you that feedback. Those ESF calls in the early days were pretty supportive for most most managers. They they found that it was um, really useful to have an inspector call them up and to have that conversation. It really was, so that's worth saying. Good to hear. I've already said before, actually, that it, I think it has been a difficult time for people we support. And it was very sad that some of the changes which would have made life easier for some of the people we support things things like clear masks you know they weren't authorized we couldn't get insurance clearance for them until really late in the day um but but you know i know that looking at what our teams have achieved some of the activities and um what they've actually done within the confines of their four walls same as all of us being you know, held in our own homes for the sake of preventing the spread of infection. There have been positives. Is there anything that you've seen as a regulator around there have been some positive outcomes as a result of this and as a result of COVID? So I think one of the main things that um, we talked about in our provider collaboration review, which was published in July 2021, um, was around the challenges, but we did find um, that despite those challenges, which I think were all very clear what they were, um, there were occasions where we found people with a learning disability generally um, were positive. And one was about how well informed they were about the pandemic um, and people understanding why they weren't able to see their friends and family in, in the way that they had done before and also how to keep safe. And we found that there's some, it's been, I suppose, quite a good development in some of the adjustments that were made to make sure that there was a really good range of communication techniques and strategies, easy reads, um, online um, information, lots of good little videos that um, were, were online that helped people to understand what was happening. So there were some good things that have been done to really keep people informed and reduce anxieties. The other thing that I think, and, and you alluded to it a little bit there already, what we saw was that providers trying to prevent and minimise disruption to services, um, that people turned to digital technology a lot more. Um, and I think this did two things. First of all, I think it improved collaboration between services. So there was a, a lot more better conversations going on between different parts of the sector. And actually, some people who hadn't been able to be really involved in reviews before, it got a lot better collection of people together who felt more confident to speak in that setting. Um, but it also, I think, gave people with a learning disability who had access to digital services and the skills to use them, sort of a broader range of activities. Sometimes there were more social groups they could get involved in, more educational tools and resources. I was reading a great story about a service that had bought some virtual reality games and had used those throughout the whole of, of COVID to really give people experiences of 
going to places and doing things that they've never done before. And they are now looking at exploring how they use those as a learning technique going forward to really get people to under try out new things and to experience more choices. So there were some good things there. Yeah. And I think, you know, working in social care, unless we are able to be continually looking for the positive, sometimes it would be easy to think everything is an upward up, uphill battle. But yeah, I agree with you. I think that it is challenged fundamentally the way some providers work and the way they operate. I know for us, um, if there was one real positive that came out of the whole of the situation going back as far as last March, that is that our communication is like it never was before. And as you say, we've utilised the technology, we've utilised the ability to be speaking to people immediately. And also the references you made to things like Easy Read, whenever there's been a change to guidance or um, any type of change to the way services have to operate fundamentally, one of the first considerations has been, so how do we communicate this to the people that we're supporting? And we've been very fortunate having things like the behavioural support practitioners. So at the point that which masks were mandated, you know, so good. And, and we will take that learning on forward that actually every bit, I mean, you always do communication well as a provider, but it really made us realise there was just that little bit more that we could do. Um, and, and that was around utilising the technology that was available for us to get it out there quickly, to be more reactive to change and to be able to track that change better. So I think, yeah, I don't think it's all been negative. I think there have been some, it's been a hard time, it's been a very hard time, but I don't think it's all been negative. And it really does feel like lots of change for us as a provider. It feels like there's an awful lot of change going on um, at the moment. I mean, at the tail end of uh, last year, we've had the right care, right support, right culture has landed. The sort of, you know, the final iteration of that. And then we were really delighted when your new quality of life tool um, for inspecting the services that we deliver um, uh, arrived and it'd be really good if you could tell us a bit more about that and about where that came from what was kind of the embryo of that how did that grow and develop okay so um, it's probably best putting this in the context of the, the work that I'm doing at the moment because as I mentioned before my role came about because of our out-of-sight report because of the Glynis Murphy and the Wharton Hall and of course, since then, we've also now had uh, GSOL, Causton Park and the awful things that happened to the three young people who were living in that service. What we're doing is constantly look at how can we really regulate better? How can we really get under what care is like for people in a service? And um, the work that I'm leading is focused on in on three areas. So I'll, I'll tell you those briefly and then I'll go in a bit more into the one about inspection and talk about the quality of life tool a bit. So. What I'm doing is um, making sure we use that policy you've referred to, right support, right care, right culture, which of course was the development from registering the right support, which was which was there before. Um, but making sure that we use that to across all services, so across hospitals, across um, uh, social care services, whether that be residential or supportive living, to make sure that we only register the right services and to make sure that all of the services that are, are operating are measured according to those standards. Because we want people to be able to say, I use services that support me in the way I want to live and where I want to live. So the first 
first of my areas is all around that. And we're particularly looking at working with commissioners, looking at working with um, those people who, who are in planning departments, as well as providers to really understand what that means, what right support, right care, right um, culture means in terms of devising serv new services, thinking about how that could be delivered. We don't want any more big hospitals being set up. If we are going to have a new, a new generation of services that are about where people need that, that um, crisis treatment, then they should be small, they should be in the community, they should be services that are really focused on um, the least uh, disruption to people that can possibly be, but giving them the real support they need within their local area. So that's the first one, therefore, is very much focused around that and working with our registration colleagues and, and working with external people to think about what are the right services and how do we make sure those are the ones that are registered. Then the second one is much more about um, looking at uh, the regulation of services. So this one, I, I want people to be able to say, um, I won't be asked to move into a service that isn't safe. And I won't be expected to continue to live in a service that doesn't meet my needs. So how do we do that? How do we actually kind of look at getting under what that means? And the new approach that we're using is very much about, uh, it's within our current methodology, um, but it's adding to it some things that we think will really help because of all the learning that we've done from those reports. So first of all, we make sure that there is always a team that includes the right people. Now, bear in mind, we are only piloting this at the moment, so this won't be the experience of all of your services. So the, the team that we're putting together should always have somebody that is uh, um, from either adult social care or hospitals teams that has uh, a knowledge of people with learning disability. What we also make sure is there's an expert by experience involved in those inspections, that the focus is on observation, and spending time really listening and talking to people. That's where the focus is. And the focus is on actually getting under what does the care look like for those people in that service. The quality of life tool that you've talked about is one of the ways of doing that. Um, and it was, it was first developed in order to address those recommendations from Glynis Murphy um, and was developed uh, with, uh, with a number of people, including um, one of our university colleagues, who have actually helped us to think this through. And there was a big piece of work done, and you'll see all of these are now on our website. But the tool that we're actually piloting at the moment within our service is a shorter version of, of, a, of a big piece of work. And the purpose is to improve our ability to consistently identify and take action in services that aren't meeting the needs, aspirations, skills, um, uh, and skills development of people with a learning disability or autistic people. So the tool looks at how well people's care plans are actually delivered in practice. It's about moving from that, what does it say? What does it say in the person's communication plan or their positive behavior support plan or their care plan about how they want their care to be delivered? And is that actually happening? So the version of the tool that's been piloted, and, 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 and um, I want to be really clear that it, it is a pilot. We're evaluating and extending the pilot at the moment, but it is still a pilot. Uh, that version has been published um, on, on, our, our, on our website, um, and as has that broader framework that the tool was based on. 
but we haven't got to the end of this journey yet. We're still looking at how well is, can it be used? How easy is it to use? How are our inspectors actually using it as a tool within those inspections? Um, when we've concluded that, obviously we will update the tool and, uh, and let people know what it is um, that we're going to use going forward. Uh, and the third bit of our work is about making sure that we influence pathways and wider healthcare of people with a learning disability and autistic people. And there's two particular things we're looking at doing here. One is looking at going into hospitals, acute hospitals, and looking how people are supported. You will be aware of some of the awful leader reports that have shown how people with a learning disability are not um, given the treatment that they should be to uh, make sure that they get that full life. And still far too many people are dying far too young um, so we want to get into acute hospitals and really have a look at where some good practice, what's the good practice that we can highlight so that other services can learn. And we're also looking at uh, how do we increase accessibility of GP services and dentists for autistic people. So those pieces of work in their fairly early stages at the moment, but to really kind of focus on the pathways and the ways that people can use other bits of the system, not just the places where they live. I really like what you've said about the third part of your work, Debbie, because actually it's almost as though you are fully aware of some of the biggest challenges that providers face. And I think at times in a sort of in a cohort of systems, so we have social care, we do have inpatient services, we then have local authorities, we then have CCGs delivering community care. It's not that any of those elements are not doing what they do correctly, but the flow across them is not always advantageous to the people who we are supporting. And sometimes it's at that point that things break down, that communication, that sharing of information, and actually the sharing of a desire to do what's best and what the person that we're supporting wants doesn't always happen. I think everybody is incredibly um, pulled in so many directions and I just think yeah pathways is absolutely necessary and I think that's been really evident throughout the pandemic there is so much a provider can do but actually when there is formal guidance it does make it incredibly easier um, so that is music to my ears um, and the accessibility to GPs and dentists absolutely spot on we are still seeing great difficulty at times in pockets. It's not the whole picture, it's not the larger picture, but there are elements where it is incredibly difficult. And when you are tracking cases, you can see that it's not for want of people trying to access healthcare. It's just that the system is so pulled in so many directions. And actually, sometimes processes have not been formalized for other agencies. And then it, it is, it's just the synapses between the different elements who, who are all have a responsibility in delivering, you know, care and support to people. So I'm really happy at that. I'm also really happy. And I know that, you know, many of my colleagues were really delighted when the website went live with the quality of life information. 
Uh, any provider worth their salt will always be looking to change and learn. And when we're all learning and going in the same direction, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. We all have the same objectives. And at the point at which people are not sat there with that objective of making sure that the care that is delivered is just brilliant for the people who need it and the support is appropriate and still just brilliant for the people we support. While there are people sat in the seats making that happen, then we can only improve, can't we? And I know that some of the logistics and some of the mechanics and some of the processes we have to and the hoops we have to jump through, they've increased greatly over the 38 years I've been in social care. But you know something underpinning all of that, there are still so many people with a great desire to see things done properly and you find a way through it. But it does help when there is a way um, and it's pulled together and there is something formally you can follow and that, that it's a standardised approach. You can deliver it in a person-centred way, but when it's very clear what you should be achieving and what's acceptable and what isn't, I tell you, Debbie, it makes life much easier for providers. It really does. I'm sure. So thank you for that. Um, and this is a really poignant question, the next one, because actually we had a first inspection for our new um, Prada Willy service. So what we've done is once we'd got to the point that we were assured, and I'm talking about sort of in the period of time that I've been in this role and working with the organisation, we did a lot of work about getting to the point that we hit a place where everybody's compliant and we know that because compliance is only the bare minimum isn't it there is so much more above that the real the real joy of life comes between being a good service and being an outstanding service that's where you want to be either at outstanding in terms of an assessment by the regulator or working towards it um, and once we've done that we've then since drilled down and we've created very clear specialisms taking that very um, specific evidence-based research and guidance from the industry leaders. So we've done autism, we have a specialist behaviour support uh, specialism, we have our brain injury, injury specialism, and our most recent one is Prada Willy. And, uh, you know, we opened a brand new Prada Willy specific service and it came in as an outstanding on its first inspection, which is quite an achievement for a brand new service. And it's delight. It's just delightful to see it. And I know that the people living there, they're happy and that's what matters. But have you got any tips with where we are at the moment? And I know it's really difficult to get an inspection that would be looking to move someone to outstanding. But for the whole learning disability and supporting autistic people, what tips have you got for managers in any organisation for achieving an outstanding rating at the moment? Well, first of all, say congratulations that's great to hear that it's very unusual to come straight in at an outstanding rating so it must be a, a really good place so well done now what I'm going to say next is probably going to sound a bit funny but I, I hopefully it will make sense it's not about having hens and the reason I say that is that sometimes we think that people try and find a formula for achieving outstanding and I remember so clearly we had a service and we talked about it and it said that it was outstanding and one of the reasons that it said that it was outstanding was because it had hens and the people in the service were going out and they were gathering the eggs and they were looking after the chickens. We then found about eight services around it all started to have hens because they thought that was the way to get to be outstanding. And I suppose what I really think is that the bottom of what makes an outstanding service is the exact opposite of that. 
which is actually what is outstanding for these people in this service? What is the ambition? Back to that word again. What is it that for each individual person in this service is going to give them that real life of their choosing? That's what makes a service outstanding. Having that real ability to focus in, get under what it is for each of those person in terms of their support, in terms of their care, but most importantly, I think, in terms of the culture of the service. Use Right Support, Right Care, Right Culture. It does give you lots of the, the um, hints and the ways in to doing that. But perhaps one of the things I can do, which might help you a bit, is give you a few questions, which I think, uh, uh, certainly as managers and leaders and as staff, is, is a good thing to think about. So how much are people in control of their lives? What can they do? How do they change the things that are happening around them? How is the service organised to meet people's ambitions rather than the functioning of the service? How many times is it possible that people can do things, for example, go to a concert late at night, go out to the pub and stay there until it shuts? How do you make sure your staff are working in a positive culture where the expectations are really high about respect, um, about really valuing individuals. How do you get that culture which doesn't accept anyone being spoken to, talked about, written about in a way that isn't demonstrating their equal value? Um, how do you demonstrate and check on this? As, as a provider, as a manager, as a shift leader, how do you know what's happening on a Friday night, on a Sunday afternoon? How do you know that there aren't cliques forming within the staff? What are you doing about really making sure that happens? How are you making sure that when you recruit staff, they've got those values that you want to be there? What was the last thing you changed as a result of someone speaking up? What was the last thing you implemented because an advocate brought to your attention that something wasn't quite right for the person in your service? Those are the kind of questions that if a service can answer really well and can demonstrate that they are doing all those things, that's what's going to help to push people into that outstanding place where they're really clearly not only meeting people's rights and needs, but aspirations and doing it in a way that shows um, the value of each individual. They are some fantastic questions there, Debbie. They are really good. But I have to say, I do like that quote, it's not about the hens. And I think <laughs> that it's something that people in social care should know. It should be on one of those chalkboards in everybody's kitchen. It's not about the hens. And I'm with you on that because I know exactly what you're talking about there. People think that it is a tick box and a list of you do this, you get outstanding and actually you have to make it about the people that you're supporting. And, I, and you know, I remember one of the very first things I did when I came to Voyage Care was we wrote the capacity and incapacity policy. I didn't want to just write an MCA policy because it's about understanding some people have capacity, some people don't have capacity. And I took lots of advice and feedback right in there. And probably the most important section in that policy do, um, document is around um, unwise decision-making and the fact that people have a right. And I learned a lot writing that. So I came here from older people's care, had worked in older people's care for 
for decades and I came here um, and I've stayed and I love it. And I think I probably am the wrong sort of nurse. I think I should have been an LD nurse because I've just, it, it's just taken over my life and I love it. But I remember that light bulb moment of, I allow, well, I did allow because they're not teenagers anymore. I allowed my teenagers to go off out on their dirty Thursday into town or their Friday night and they would make unwise decisions during that time. But yet we were focusing and concentrating on not letting people with capacity to make decisions to really make them. And so we did a lot of work around how do we evidence what we've done to give people the information they need to weigh it all up, but to still live a life. And if necessary, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm going to go and sit on the train tracks but just things that people leading ordinary lives do every day, because we all take risks every day. And I think that when you have a mechanism in place for that, and you have that focus in your mind, that the care and support you're delivering will be as safe as you can make it, and you're meeting all those requirements, that was one of the biggest learnings I had, that actually for people with a learning disability and for autistic people with capacity, we cannot be jailers or prison warders. We have to support them to lead a fulfilled life and you have to put the framework in around it. But that's me waffling. But I think that's been a big learning for me um, over the years. So the next question I've got for you is, and I don't know whether you can help me with this, but have you got any really good examples of really good quality and care and support that you've observed or heard of recently, Debbie? Well, I think I'd like to draw your attention to the um, Home for Good report that we published in, in the September just gone, because um, the thing that's exercising me the most at the moment is how we move the people on who are really have become stuck in our hospitals. And that report includes um, eight best practice case studies which demonstrate that good community support can be provided for people. Um, with a learning disability, a mental health need, or autistic people within the settings that we are working in. If you look at that report and look at somebody like Andy's experience, so Andy is 30, he is autistic, he has a learning disability and an anxiety disorder. In a seven-year period from the age of 18, he's been sectioned twice and spent six of those years in several specialist hospitals. Um, when he's in a hospital, when he's under section, he... he um, tries to strangle staff or he may rip radiators from the wall when his anxiety spirals. He's not an easy person to provide care for. But uh, Andy's support service was designed for him from scratch to meet his needs. And one of the actions the provider took, and I think this is something that's really important, we talked about pathways before, is that his support service was designed um, alongside the multidisciplinary team so that there was really regular contact in the community and this team uh, were there to support with the, his requirements and to help the staff who are providing the day-to-day -day care to make sure that they continue to get it right. The provider recruited his team using a values-based approach and made sure that those people reflected Andy's interests and aspirations. So they were people who would be able to work with him and help him to succeed in his new home. And it worked. Uh, so 18 months after he was actually referred 
he's settled in his home. It doesn't happen quickly. I think that's a really important message. It takes a, a long time to get this right. And he's now uh, really been able to reduce his medication and live a much, much fuller life. And I think what we're seeing is where we do have that, that combination of the individualized approach and that ambition that is founded on that real respect for the person you can do some great things and we can find services that will work for everybody, but it can't be done by fitting people into services very often. It is mostly by developing the service around that person. Yeah, I, I read the document and I read all of the um, the scenarios and actually did take some real learnings from that, Debbie. Um, it was incredibly useful. One of the things that we've done, as I said to you before, is we've introduced this specialist behaviour support specialism. And what's really important is that, especially for a provider, is that you continually review and you take the learnings. So as with as we work um, on a day-to-day basis with people moving from secure settings into community settings, and that is quite a big ask, isn't it, to go from a locked setting into your own property with either a tenancy or a license to live there uh, and the freedoms that that can bring if people do have that that element of freedom it's it's a completely different change and you're right it is about putting that person at the center it is not you know I'm long in the tooth I say it to so many people I've been around the block several times and actually you feel quite ashamed when I think over the years how transitions have been made and we know so much more now and I think it is only right that every provider is undertaking those transitions safely but with the person that they're supporting right bang in the middle of it Uh, and it just goes back to what you said at the beginning we can't just do things to people so it's really important you know no more is it are we in the situation where we just say that's where you're going and that's it we have to have that agreement um does my heart good i'll be getting to retirement and thinking there's still so much more to do but we have come a long way i think as 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 an industry and also in your approach as a regulator we've come a long way in my lifetime and i think we should be proud of that that you know it's you look at where we've come since just the winterbourne we're not where we want to be and we probably haven't done it as quickly but we shouldn't forget the changes that we have made and that every day we have got the opportunity to make changes again however saying that i think one of the biggest issues at the moment in that continuity of care across settings so that moving on it is really difficult with staffing at the moment it really is and i think it is impacting i think i'm hearing from many colleagues from different providers and across the um, industry of people not being able to move people on people turning down packages and i do believe that will impact on quality of care um but what's your thoughts on that and do you think there is any solution to this kind of well it is just a crisis that we're in at the moment isn't it that seems to have come out of nowhere it's as though, you know, the last four or five months, everybody has hit the same place in terms of staffing, haven't they? Do you think there's a solution to it? It's a tricky one, isn't it? And I, um, I think you'll, you'll recognise it in our State of Care report that we've just published. We talk a lot about this and the challenge of the workforce. Perhaps there's a few things I'd like to say. I mean, firstly, it can't be said enough 
that we do really appreciate the sort of hard work and the dedication that all colleagues working across social care have done throughout the past year because it is phenomenal and you know that there has been so much um, energy gone into making sure that people are kept safe and people are kept as well as possible and making sure that we keep our commitments up to people we, we do see that and we do really appreciate it and we also understand that the impact of working under that sustained pressure can't be underestimated and we know how the negative effects on health and social care workers of anxiety stress exhaustion and burnout are, are real and need to be addressed and so important that providers have good things in place to actually support their staff through this these next months, which may be just as, as tricky. So I think it's absolutely right that we acknowledge those challenges, but perhaps one of the solutions is to try to change the focus a bit, because I think what we're in danger of doing is, is getting everyone to think, oh, poor social care, it's a terrible place, it's so hard to work there. And I'd like to get us to start to think about changing the focus from the challenges to the victories highlighting what's really good about care and the good practice that we see, the good outcomes that you've achieved and making sure that's what's flagged out there in a much stronger way. My story is that working in care is fabulous. You know, I've loved it. It's a career for me that started being, a, I was paid £3,000 a year as a, as a live-in care assistant and it set me up to a career that has just been fantastic. And I am still as motivated to make that difference as I was in those days. When, uh, I'll tell you a little secret here, I almost almost got sacked for whistleblowing in my first um, job because people were being, um, people were being restrained by being uh, tied into beds at night. And I was so, so angry about it. Coming out of, coming out of university, had no qualifications or anything, knowledge about um, working in care. But I just knew my values told me what was good care and what wasn't good care. And then I built on that with my learning, built a career. And it is fabulous. And we've got to get that message out there. We've got to really get people to understand that this isn't a difficult dead end job, that, you know, this can be such an amazing work to do. And some of the people I've met, some of the people with learning disabilities that I've lived with um, working in services have just taught me so much. And um, you know, they have given me an insight into how you can make the most of your life in a way that probably no one else has done so. So my, my, it's not a solution, but my suggestion is that we try to reframe this conversation and we make it much more about how wonderful social care is, not how difficult. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I don't think there is a clear solution at the moment other than... Um, we just have to commit to what we're doing and, you know, keep on voicing how great it is. I can't imagine, I'm like you, Debbie, I can't imagine ever having done anything else with my life. In fact, it's been my life to the point that, you know, my family completely know quite often, you know, I make time for them. But when I'm working, my priority is what are we doing? Are we doing it right? And are we doing the very best we can? Uh, and I'm great. I'm grateful, as I'm sure you are, to so many people across the industry that have that approach. But I do worry about the future. And that's just kind of a statement. I know that I talked before and I, I know I'm, I've said that I've been around a long time. Over your career, what's been the major changes? What have you noticed in terms of the stance on quality care? 
people learn disabilities. I mean, the very fact that you are in that role at the moment, that is a move forward and it is a great change and for autistic people. But for you personally, what have you noticed in terms of the approach around quality care and support for people with the learning disabilities over time? You said earlier that it's been quite gradual, some of these things. And I think there has been that sort of slow movement of acceptance of that some of the models of care that we used to have are just not good enough anymore. And I think fundamentally underneath that is that recognition of people, people's human rights and that full acceptance that, that people with the learning disabilities have the same rights that the rest of us do. And therefore, what, what we should be doing is looking at how we make uh, their lives, support them to live the lives that are the most fulfilling for them. And I think that's where probably things have changed. And as people are now able to live longer lives, it's really important that those are better lives as well as longer lives. And that does take us into that, that focus on what it should be like for each individual. I reckon it's taken a long time to come. Um, you know, some of the reports that go back for, for a long time, don't they? Um, and we've talked about time for change, now is the time, um, and the building the right support initiative, that's now six years uh, old, and we're still kind of working towards getting people out of those hospital settings. I think that quality is now seen as much more about um, designing services around people than designing services for people. So it's this this back to that message again. Um, and, you know, I do start to wonder if, if, if this generation will look back and will say, my goodness me, we were, we were putting our older people into huge surfaces of 100 beds. And you know, was that really what we would want? And I, um, I guess that I think people's expectations are at the bottom of, of a lot of these changes. So if you get that recognition that this is about people's rights, and then you think about what would I want? What are my expectations? What are the kind of things I would want for my life? I think that's what takes us into the right direction for the kind of services that we want both now and in the future. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And interestingly, I had that very same conversation with somebody I hadn't met that had asked me would I just have a quick call with them last night about the delivery of care services for older people. And we had that same conversation about we've put people into these cavernous type I'm not going to say institutions. I think that they're not. I think there are some really great quality providers out there. But I do think some of the principles around care and support that we apply for people with a learning disability actually would fit very nicely around people with dementia. I think they would fit very well. Um, I, I guess it's one for the future. It's one to watch, isn't it? And that kind of brings me quite nicely then to my final question. What do you think quality looks like in the future? I'm asking you here for some pointers now. Where do we need to be looking? And how can we strive to keep meeting the changing quality standards? I am very hot on making sure that as soon as something lands, um, I'm a great believer in get the gap analysis done. How much of this are we doing? And then where have we got the gap? And then how do we change it? And how do we communicate it out? And how do we monitor that, that change has been demonstrated and then more importantly sustained? Because the, the, you know, the changes, even over my eight years at Voyage, I could write a book on the changes that we've rolled out on the back of things that have come from kind of the wider industry. You know, there is so much. And at times, I don't think we realise how much we change things. And 
how how the delivery of care and supports change and, and it, it just keeps happening but what do you think is there anything priority for the future that that you're aware of that's coming down the line after so we are working to develop um, a, a new understanding of quality across health and social care through the work we're doing in our strategy and developing our regulatory model, which is happening at the moment. And uh, what we're trying to do is bring a much more unified and consistent understanding of quality um, through uh, our, our strategy, because what we're trying to do is develop a, a single assessment framework for provider regulation that will go across all types of services. Now. I think it's right that we do that because that will help us to really make sure that we have um, uh, have the right standards across all services. But then underpinning that, what we'll have to make sure is that there's that specialist understanding and specialist knowledge that we found so important in learning disability services. One of the things that I can give you a bit of a heads up about is what we're doing is exploring how we use what's already there, existing materials, particularly having a real focus on I and we statements. So we're looking at the work that's being done by uh, TLAP, think Global Act Personal, and using those statements to really make sure that we focus on outcomes and what people want. And we've done some initial scoping around this, but we are now starting to build up that momentum and think about what would it look like if we have that series of I and we statements across all of the work that we do. And I suppose my hint then for the, for the future really would be, if you think about the differences between what you would, your parents would have accepted in care, I mean, our parents' generation, I think, or well, my parents certainly, were very grateful. They were grateful for most of the things that were given them. They were grateful coming out of the war with having enough money in their pockets, having enough food to eat. I don't think our generation are quite as grateful. I think we're a bit more demanding. And I think we won't accept some of the things that the previous generations have. And if we constantly think about what would I want in this situation what is it that i am going to be satisfied with when i am the, i am being cared for i don't think you can go far wrong because i do think that we have we have now built up some really high expectations of what care should be like and how it should support us to live our full lives not just to end our lives in a in a setting where we are um, supported to maintain the care that we need that's really useful. And I guess for anybody that reads and and, and is linked into things like TLAP and, and the other people who drive the change, there should have been no shock that these I statements and we statements were coming down the line, should there really? We should have already been looking at these. And um, yeah, fortunately, I'm glad that they have been well and truly on our radar for a while. Um, and I think it's probably going to be a positive move. The only the only thing that I'd say is sometimes change is difficult for an organisation. And I think with the whole issues of what we've been through, it's it's very trying for a provider at the moment in how do you direct an organisation to slightly change? Because it's not a big change, but it is a change of approach and a change of thinking, isn't it? But I think, for, from my point of view, I do think it's the right thing to do. And I, I for one, welcome them, Debbie. Um, so think about how we introduce it later. I'm embracing them. We'll work out how we get them over the line uh, with everything else that's going on at the moment. But you know what? Uh, the day that I say I can't do something is the day that I'll retire and go and live <laughs> somewhere else. And I've come to the end of my questions. So that wasn't too bad, was it? 
Not at all. It's been really great to talk to you. So thank, thank you, Amanda. You. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more, you can catch up with this and other podcasts on the Voyage Care website.